Uh, welcome to another edition of Culture Class Podcast, a podcast where we get to interact with people from different backgrounds, get to learn about other cultures and what's going on in other parts of the world. Today, I have someone uh, who's tuning in from Washington, D.C. while doing this interview over the internet, over Zoom. Welcome to the podcast, Garrett. Hey, glad to be here. Thank you. How's it been? From what I understand, you just came back from Seattle, right? How's the airport uh, experience? Yeah, so so the airports are are like ghost towns. Uh, you know, I showed up. I, I flew in from uh, Chicago earlier this morning, mm. and I was one of ten people on the plane into DC. Damn, that's almost uh, like a private plane. Wait, did you fly in through Dallas or Reagan? Uh, into into Reagan, and it was crazy because I uh, I mean I just had a carry on bag, so I just went up to security uh, and you know took my laptop out, went through the gate, and uh, ten people later, sitting on a plane, everyone's all spread out with masks on and you know a few hours later we fly into dc are the flight attendants nicer since there are fewer people on board it's kind of like the same uh so you don't get to interact with them too much i mean they they do their safety briefs and everything they're i noticed they're a lot more generous uh so, so like for instance okay, delta, so no peanuts or anything oh i can understand that no so actually um so delta actually has been giving out goodie bags and then uh, this morning on on the American Airlines flight, they gave me a whole bottle of water, which was like uh, I think it was like a liter liter of water. So um, yeah, I can understand that. Has has Trump released the bailout money for the airline industry yet, or they're still deliberating over that one? Yeah, so they 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 got that all situated. That was the well the third bill. They're, they sent it just past the fourth bill, uh, but the airlines have been going back and forth with the federal government, uh, dealing with the Treasury Department uh, to figure out what loans and grants they're going to accept. Got it. Got it. Hopefully we don't see any too much uh, stock buybacks in the coming years, but that's by the way. Uh, and I'm saying all this, uh, Garrett and I actually have somewhat of a history. We both went to school together, even though we didn't get to interact too much when we were in school. Uh, uh, so we both graduated from American University and we took like a couple of finance classes together uh, back in school. I, I can remember him always coming in like with a suit just as the class is about to start, like he just came in from work literally like two minutes before yep. Jeff Harris uh, walk, walked in or, or you know, uh, one of all those other professors. And uh, how did you plan to juggle that? Because you were working a full-time job, I guess, and you were going to school at the same time. But D.C. isn't a big place, but still. Yeah, so D.C. is not a big a big place. And fortunately, I work fairly close. So it's, it's normally like a 20-minute commute into school. Uh, but, you know, one, th- one thing I think Americans, uh, American University is great for is the flexibility with the classes. Uh, you know, the entire degree I did uh, it, on weekday evenings, you know, class mm. 5.30. Didn't have any issues with it whatsoever. So, you know, I'd just go to work during the day. And then, you know, at night, just transfer over grab a bite to eat along the way or, you know, wait until class is over and get, get some food with some friends. But, you know, just made it look like I was working like 12 hour days. That's all. But, Got it. but definitely. Got it. Cool. I mean, you are the lucky one. Cause I think you were in the finance program. You're in the master's in finance and uh, you guys have most of your classes were in the evenings. Uh, I was in the MBA program and most of our freaking classes were in the morning, especially like first year MBA. The second year you know, had some flexibility, some finance classes here and there, but we're always complaining that what the hell is going on? But apparently there was a professional MBA program that ran in the evening, so they didn't want to like clash. And to make that more valuable, they decided to hold ours in the morning. So it was a whole thing. But anyway, uh, it's just uh, good memories. And obviously Je- Jeff Harris, right? Do, do you still keep in touch with uh, Jeff, who... no, so I, I haven't talked to Jeff in a while, but I, I do keep in touch. Uh, you know, I'm fairly close um, with AU still. 
kind of stay involved in the alumni community. And then I've been, uh, actually, I started auditing a course. So we graduated in mm. December and, and I went back straight away to take advantage of uh, the school as the alumni audit program. So you could audit a course for $150. $50. Yeah, I, I really wanted to stay back in D.C. and actually you know, audit a couple of courses, especially in blockchain. There are a couple of blockchain courses I hadn't yet taken. And it was still, it's still not it was, it's still an emerging, you know, subject where a lot of people are still doing research into it and if i had stayed in the dc area i'd have obviously still participated in au and that's the thing about au right we have these great professors obviously jeff harris being the chief economist at the sec being one of them you know took a, a bunch of finance courses but i i but i i talk too much about about the old days let's let's talk about you for a while uh, talk yeah. about growing up um from what i understand you grew up in pennsylvania right yeah yeah so i, I grew up in you know, little suburb uh, right outside of like Southeast Pencil or Southeast Pittsburgh, Southwest Pennsylvania, uh, you know, small town. I mean, everyone's the same there. Uh, Everyone says a small town. What's a small town in your opinion? What's what's the population of your uh, uh, suburb? What I actually grew up in, about 10,000. Uh, oh, okay. So, so fairly, well, within the, within the municipality, uh, but I, I mean, it, you know, it's about 45 minutes outside of the city. So just like your normal suburb. Um, but it's still, you know, a decently small town, probably about halfway between farmland and, uh, you know, big city life. Got it. Got it. Well, what did, what were some of the things you indulged in while growing up? Uh, what was common? Uh, did you guys ride your bikes? Did you go hunting? Did you go fishing? What was it growing up? What was it like growing up in uh, suburb Pennsylvania? It was, uh, I mean, it was a variety of things. I mean, you know, I think we went through, well, me personally went through many phases uh, you know, I tried the skateboarding thing that didn't work out. I oh, tried- really? In Pennsylvania? <laughs> yeah, I, I played football. I played basketball, you know, okay. after a while, once I got into high school. Uh, basketball, I stayed fairly consistent with basketball. I, I think I did about eh, seven or eight seasons. Oh. Um, you know, so I, I played it. I was fairly young and, I, you know, I still enjoy black basketball. I'm short, so, you know, it didn't really work out, but I mean. Yeah, we we would explore in the woods. We'd you know always hang out at the the park and um, you know just see what we could get into. You know, get in trouble and stuff. <laughs> typical stuff, right? Yeah, typical little kid stuff. <laughs> and I decided to ask about that because I wanted to like kind of like get into your frame of mind because eventually, I think shortly after high school or a couple of years after high school, you ended up enlisting in the U.S. military in the Marines. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just wanted to know like your thought process on how you eventually got there. Like a lot of people that get into the U.S. military, it's either they are following the legacy of, you know, their dad or their uncle who was in the military, or they were just freaking troublesome as a kid. And, you know, their parents just, or they themselves said, look, the military is the only place that can save me. Which one was it for you? Was it one or the other or a bit of both? You know, it's really interesting how this whole thing panned out. It was, um, you know, even looking back on it now, I don't think any of it should have happened, but um, how, how it actually happened was, uh, you know, I graduated high school. I was a, a really bad student, you know, never got good grades whatsoever. Didn't find myself. You know, I, I knew I wanted things to be different, but I didn't really know how to get there uh, whatsoever. Um, so whenever I graduated high school, I went straight into community college and I took uh, a full course load. So I was in four classes. I did them all online. I did not understand the the, the workload behind taking online classes mm. uh, time. And I just like flunked through everything. 
I, I started working at like a car dealership and then a few weeks later got fired because I was like too timid. Um, and, and, you know, I just like hit a point like a few months after graduation. I'm like, how the heck did my like life just like fall apart in like a matter of months, right? So it's like, you know, I failed school, um, you know, don't have a job, I had to find another job. And, uh, you know, just randomly, I just went into a recruiter and was like, hey, I want to leave like tomorrow. Um, turns out I didn't wow. leave like today. You know, I ended up leaving 10 months later. But, well, I've, I've always heard about that. And obviously I'm not a U.S. citizen, so I, I can't just walk into I guess I can, you know, walk into a recruiter's office. I don't know if they're still doing some of all those programs, like the, like the MAVNI program or whatever. But so our, our military recruiter for people listening to this from outside the U.S., they have these spots, right? Uh, like offices or layouts, they go into high schools to recruit. Uh, people are interested in like seeing the war or joining the military. You just located one of those offices, you walked into there. What did the person say? Did he try to, or he or she try to like discourage you? Did he immediately like give you a form? How was that process like? No, so it's actually, um, you know, I, I, I didn't really intend on the Marine Corps at first. I mean, my, my dad was in the Marines. Um, but I, you know, oh, I kinda, your dad was in the Marines. Yeah, my dad was in the Marines. And, okay. You know, I kind of weighed all the options first. You know, like I, I, I'm real big on like reading, so I was like doing all kinds of research. You know, thinking I like knew everything about the process. Um, but you know, I was fortunate. You know, every every like military recruiter is kind of assigned to a high school, and what they do is they do events in, in like whether it's like handing out flyers or just having like uh, extracurricular activities. So I've had like I had a relationship with the with the military recruiters like throughout high school. So when okay. the decision came to actually go and and start doing paperwork, uh, it, it was just really like a phone call. Um, and, and it's not you, you know like when you when you sit down with a recruiter, it's it's mostly uh, kind of informative. I, I mean, some, some recruiters you get, they're like kind of salesy, like, hey, you know, I haven't had anyone kind of like enlist or join the military in months, you know, <laughs> I, I need you to like sign up today. Uh, mm-hmm. You that from time to time. Um, yeah. But for the most part, I mean, if you just, you know, be stern and, and just ask them like, hey, look, I, I want information. I mean, that's all these, these folks do like day in and day out is just explain what to expect. And, and, you know, really just went through that process before before kind of anything else even happened. Got it. I mean, it's kind of kind of interesting because where I come from, right, my dad was in the military. My dad was in the Nigerian Air Force. I tried to join the Nigerian Navy like 10 years ago or something. Uh, I, did, I didn't eventually enlist, but I saw myself join the Nigerian Navy. But it's different in a country like Nigeria and most other African countries. Like a lot of people, like the military, like especially like the officer rank, they take in like... In total, maybe they take in 2,000 people a year or something like that, even fewer. So it's really, really difficult to get into. Like a lot of people try their best and like lobby to get into the military. It's just strange to come to a country where the military is actually actively going out to recruit people. Yeah. So if, if, you know, normal American citizens were left, and obviously there were things like the draft in the past. So it just goes to show that if normal Americans were just left to go about their business, no one would even consider the military as, as a career, which is strange because a lot of people end up going into the military and the value that brings later on in life, like the discipline it teaches you, the camaraderie it builds with your brothers, uh, you know, everything you learn in the military becomes so invaluable uh, a little down the road. But but why the Marines? Why exactly did you choose the Marines uh, specifically? Was it because your dad was a Marine? Um, I guess partly. Um, it wasn't like a huge thing. I think I think one of the 
and, and this is kind of funny, but I think one of the most fundamental reasons is, uh, you know, I, I thought that, um, well, not, not so much now, but at the time I was like super like against like any form of exercise whatsoever. <laughs> like, I, like I played sports and everything, but I, joined the, I decided to join the Marine. <laughs> yeah. Just like, you know, Hey, if, 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 if I join this, you know, it, it'll be a part of my life. And that's, mm. I mean, that's really, I guess what happened. Okay. Um, part of it was, you know, I had the familiarity around it. You know, I wanted the challenge, you know, there, there's a stigma about the Marines that, that everyone's like, Hey, this is, it. Um, so it was like part of that. Uh, but, you know, I, I think all the branches, they, pros and cons of each, you know, like, you know, looking back on it, um, if I, I mean, I don't think I would have changed anything, but, um, you know, if I talk to people about that have questions about joining the military, mm -hmm. I would steer them in in a way uh, or towards a branch that I think they would probably align well in. Got it. Got it. Take me through the training process because from what I understand, the Marines go through one of the most, if not the most rigorous training out of all the branches in the military. Like what was that training process like for you? Where did you guys train? Uh, how long was the training process? What kind of activities did you guys do? Yeah. So, so really, I, I mean, a lot of it depends. The training, I mean, in the military, training is like a continuous thing. So uh, during your entire time, you just do training and training and training uh, on a variety of things. But uh, anytime you join the military, uh, you have to go through what's called like basic training or like mm. in this case, it's called recruit training. And it's like you're just introduction to the military life, to your branch of service where they teach you how to be a service member, how to, you know, address people by rank. We learn customs and traditions. I mean, there's a variety of things. But in my case, where I went to recruit training for the Marines, um, you know, everyone says it's kind of like the the toughest, the tough, you know, toughest military training. But what they're kind of referring to is the the most challenging like basic training. So there's like some, there's many other trainings that are definitely more difficult than uh, like the basic training that the Marines go through uh, at the beginning. Um, but, you know, it's really contingent upon like what job you do and, you know, things like that. But in my instance, I, I went, uh, being that I lived east of the Mississippi, uh, I went down to uh, South, South Carolina to an area called Paris Island. And you spend about 13 weeks down there just doing- 13 a weeks. Wow. I thought it was like four or five weeks. 13 weeks that's a long time yeah so that, that's another thing that um you know people always say like hey this is the most challenging um, because it's the longest so like the other branches i think navy's like uh, six or several six or seven weeks um, you have the army which is right around there uh, air force the same so it's like you know really almost double the time of, of all the other branches um so that's why it also gets that kind of but, you know, it's really meant to do the same thing as all the other ones. Um, you know, physical fitness is a, is a, is a huge um, kind of area of focus in, in Marine boot camp. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's like, I mean, it, it's preached throughout the whole thing. You're constantly running, you're screaming. You're, you're getting in shape, you're doing obstacle courses, you're doing push-ups, um, I mean, a variety of things. They, they teach you all the customs and traditions. You learn how to dress, how to wear your uniform, how to talk to people, how to walk, your mannerisms. I mean, you learn all kinds of things. You learn how you, uh, marksmanship skills. So you go on the on the rifle range, learn how to uh, kind of just use a weapon. Like, you know, most of the folks that go down there, they have never seen uh, a gun, a rifle, uh, you 
you know, anything ever in their lives. So when, when they touch it for the first time, it's like, you know, they're really timid, they're scared of it. And what the training is meant to do, uh, at least like the weapon training is get you familiar with the weapon, make it so you basically, you could use it as a tool and not be scared of it and, and, and use it, you know, respect it really um and then you do like land navigation uh you do a variety of uh like exercises um, land navigation is that like well, what's that yeah so, so that's um that's a pretty interesting one so you basically uh you get like a buddy and you're given like a, a map and a compass you have to navigate um around and actually find like certain landmarks oh <laughs> and you might not necessarily be familiar with the terrain right yep yep so so that's mm. absolutely you've never you, you've never seen the terrain before you just have a map shows the elevation and they teach you um, pretty much how to navigate by a compass and you you know, go and try to find these certain things. Okay, okay. Uh, there are a couple of myths I heard about, you know, marine training, like basic training. Is it true that you guys spend a lot of time in cold water? No. Like get, getting accustomed to cold water, is that a thing? <laughs> no, no, so not, not, for, uh, not for marine uh, training. I mean, there's like little puddles here and there uh, that you'll find yourselves in. Um, but, you know, for the most part, no, no water whatsoever. Uh, you know, a lot of times when people refer to the water, they're talking about like Navy SEAL training, uh, which oh, got in Colorado, it. California, where um, you'll just kind of, uh, you know, they, they basically just throw you in the in the waves and you just sit in waves. And- yep. Oh, okay. That's SEAL training. Yeah, got yeah. it. Well, no, what, I mean, about, what about the bell thing? Is the bell thing also SEALs or that cuts across all the branches? Like if you want to give up, you go ring a bell that, hey, I'm fed up with this. I, I can't last another 10 weeks in this camp and I want to go home. That's Thing. Yeah, so, so really, really familiar with the with the seal training with the with the bell. But there's certainly, I mean, there's certainly water trainings with you know at least in the in the Marine Corps. So the Marine Corps is like a amphibious branch of service. So um, you know they are on a lot of Navy ships, which Navy is kind of our branch of service that operates maritime environments. And so a lot of the stuff that the Marines do have to be in water as well. So like. You know, the Marines have scuba diving schools. They have, uh, you know, all kinds of training from swimming to doing uh, like helicopter egress training where Mm. you get the crash of a helicopter in the water and then get out. Uh, So there's a variety of like water-based maritime trainings. They're all normally follow-on courses. Like you wouldn't, um, the service itself wouldn't take um, a person and, just off the street and then throw them in a, you know, some of these more advanced trainings, um, you know, like right away. I mean, you, in boot camp, you do some basic water training, uh, like in a pool. And, but that's, I mean, that's about it. You like swim in, uh, instead of like swimming trunks, like what you're, what you're used to, you're like wearing your uniform and then you have to stop. How, how heavy is your uniform? Like, I'm not saying your uniform, like when you're fully geared up, like how, how heavy is it? Uh, I know obviously the gun might be a little bit, but what else do you have on you? Does that make it difficult to like run long distance or those are the kind of things they prepare you for? Uh, during yeah, training? so it's like a conditioning process. So like, like when you go through like boot camp, you, you start out just wearing uniform, right? And, you know, most, well, South Carolina and then like San Diego, where, where the, the folks on the West Coast go, um, you know, it's really hot there. So when you're wearing like long sleeve, uh, you know, pants and, and long sleeve, you know, uh, jackets and everything, it, um, it's kind of, it's hot. So you're sweating and plus you're wearing, you know, a hat or I mean, we call them covers. 
um, you know, it's really hot, and, but you acclimate to it. And, you know, slowly but surely, uh, you, you build up to kind of like a, a full gear type thing. But it's really contingent upon uh, what you're doing. So like, you know, most of the time when you go through um, like basic training, at least you're not wearing any of like your your combat gear type thing. You, I mean, you take a, a rifle everywhere, uh, but that's just because they want to familiarize you with, uh, with the weaponry. There's like some advanced um, like follow on like combat training that the Marines get um, depending on your job like you could do like advanced infantry training if you're if you're like an infantry person uh, you have you know additional like special op stuff that you could go to like schools where you're actually wearing like um, like a bulletproof vest type thing like black jackets is what we'll call them and you know it's like protective armor uh, you could get grenades you can get ammunition you could get first aid kits um, I mean, there's, there's a variety of things, water, uh, camelback, you know, we, we, we mm. wear camelbacks, um, because, you know, when you're, when you're doing, uh, things all, um, like whatever it is that you're doing, I mean, you're going to need water to kind of sustain yourself. It's, it's a lot of that stuff. You'll be sweating right away. Um, you know, whether you're at the rifle range or, or even, even in a real life situation where you're like in combat or something you're going to need water. Um, so pretty much everything you need to need to survive and sustain yourself. Got it. Got it. And so you go through this uh, 13 week training, you come out, I know you eventually, you know, got stationed in a couple of places abroad, but, but what was your first deployment to uh, like, where, where do you, where, where you deploy? Yeah. So, so just a, just a quick snippet. So like after, after like my basic training, um, so I was like a non-infantry person. So I, I actually worked in like finance and accounting in, in the Marine Corps. Um, so that was one of the things that kind of got me because I, I knew I, I liked finance um, and I found out I could do it to, through the military and actually get like, you know, like education benefits, all kinds of other benefits. Uh, so it made sense. But basically, once you leave recruit training, you go, you do like a month long, um, like basic combat training, um, just to give you, you know, a little bit more familiarization around, um, you know, just combat tactics and everything. And then you go to your job school. Um, okay. That's normally where you learn a little bit about what you're going to be doing for your. Oh, so whether that's finance or engineering or whatever. whatever. Yeah. How, how long is that one? It's. It, it, it's contingent. Uh, so you could go pretty much anywhere in the United States. If you're an aircraft mechanic, go to Pensacola, most likely in, in Florida. If you're a uh, truck driver, you'll go to Missouri. If you're um, like for me, I was I was finance. I, I went to North Carolina. I mean, you, there's a variety of schools all across the country. Um, and, you know, folks will go do their courses. And then after they graduate those courses, that's like the, the, the moment in time that you're like basically done with training. And you're going to go start doing what you were, I guess, signed up to signed do. Up to. Yeah, Does so the military still use the same testing tactics? Because obviously, like all these testing uh, uh, mechanisms that we have, or, you know, exams, SATs, uh, you know, um, using um, what's it called? O um, optical mark recognition, all this stuff was developed by the military. Are those some of uh, some of the things that are still being used in those schools to test military, like uh, academically and things like that? Or they have like new procedures now? Well, like certainly. I mean, it, you know, it depends. Like to, to get into the military, you take a, a, what they call ASVAB. Um, if you go enlisted, if you don't go enlisted and go and get a degree first, you could use your, um, it depends on kind of how you get in, but you could use like SAT scores to get a scholarship, go to a university, uh, get it paid for by the federal government, go and 
you know, be an officer. So there's a variety of testing mechanisms out there. Um, you know, like going through school, they, they use a military's real hands on. So they always try to put you in the seat to do these things. Mm. Uh, but there's certainly, um, depending on uh, what you're doing, can certainly be multiple choice tests, open-ended tests, you know, exactly what you're familiar with in a college setting. Got it. Got it. Okay. So you, you finished uh, the, the bulk of your training, uh, the stretch. Uh, why, why did you go to, uh, where were you deployed to? Yeah, so actually, I, I didn't deploy um, right away. I actually ended up going to Virginia Beach. So it's, they, they call it uh, in garrison. Um, it's basically just a, a, a place that you go um, to sustain operations, um, you know, just normal day-to-day things. And so I went to Virginia Beach. Um, so it was a pretty pretty interesting place because, I one, I didn't really know about a huge military presence. Um, little did I know at the time, you know, with me just living in Pennsylvania. Mm. It's, you know, has the largest naval base <laughs> in the world. Uh, in Virginia Beach, really? Oh, well, in Norfolk, yeah. But oh. it's a military um, area. They have a naval air station. There's a, you know, I mean, just big military presence down in that area, Hampton Roads area. So I, I spent about um, six months there and then, um, you know, showed up for work one day. And then, you know, they were like, hey, uh, we, we need someone to, to go to Okinawa, Japan. Uh, we, we got kind of like sourced for someone to go overseas um, because there's um, just not a lot of people over there. Uh, you know, they, they asked me if I wanted to go over and I'm like, Hey, you know, I've been here six months. Um, yeah. Can I, can I go? And about six months later, uh, right at the beginning of 2015, I ended up going over to Japan. Uh, oh, wait. So that one's like a deployment. That was like a volunteer situation. Yeah. Well, I mean, you could depend on how you classify. I mean, it's, it's, um, a deployment's kind of a, a vague term. Um, normally, you know, when you're talking to like someone in the military, deployment is like somewhere where you go to like a combat zone to like fight, mm. um, do those sort of things. But like in my case, I went to another um, place like in Japan where we've had a presence. The U.S. has been there since like World War II. Mm. Uh, so, it, you know, there's a lot of infrastructure there. Uh, we do a lot of community humanitarian stuff we maintain a presence so everything's like generally safe there i mean there is um i mean there's always your your, your different threats like with with me being in japan you know there was a, a bigger emphasis on north korea right because you're like right in their backyard as opposed to being in the united states mm. and you know worrying about like uh domestic issues or like floods or hurricanes or, or like other things like that um, so, so you're like, your, your focus shifts, but one thing, you know, I realized, um, especially as we continue on this, this story a bit is the, the military has a, the U S military has a presence like everywhere. Yeah, like, tell me about it. Absolutely. I probably listen to this conversation right now. Hi guys. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just joking, but Japan, that was, uh, Okinawa, that, that's uh, pretty far away. I mean, for someone who grew up uh, in Pennsylvania, how was your life in Japan? Now, obviously I know a uh, bulk of your time will be spent confined to like the U S military base for security reasons, but also because you have to work, but what did you do? Did you get to do any touristy stuff at all, um, in the city? Yeah. Yeah. So, so we, you know, we got the, I mean, there was like some restrictions out there but for the most part i mean you could do things if you wanted to uh like i i got certified scuba diver out there i mean tropical island where i was so i was always out uh exploring waterfalls or like going to they have a big aquarium over there just generally just going out you know seeing seeing the the culture eating food uh all, all kinds of stuff so you know it was kind of a 
uh, I wouldn't say a culture shock, but I mean, it was definitely a completely different way of living life. Uh, yeah. which I think is one of the most beneficial things that I received in the military. Are a lot of people in Okinawa, Japan, like, is it easy to spot that, hey, this guy is probably an officer? Unlike some countries where you go there, but besides maybe the U.S. military, basically a heavy, maybe expatriate community, maybe oil workers and something, there are just a lot of foreigners in that you know, vicinity. Is, is Okinawa like that? Or almost everyone who's not from Japan is most likely a military official uh, from the uh, yeah, so there's a, I mean, you, there's a, especially the way that a lot of the mil- military folks dress and everything, you, there's like a, a, you could, I mean, if you're in, you, in the military, you could say, oh, that guy's probably there. She's military because of how they act. Mm. Uh, but, you know, some other times it's like, hey, I would have never guessed. Uh, but it, you know, really depends. I mean, there is a, um, Okinawa is a really interesting place because uh, it, it's an island about a few hundred miles south of, of mainland Japan. And they actually, the island itself bears um, like a lot of um, like traditions and like cultures of, of China and Japan. It's like really, it's bizarre because of how it's close blend. Mm. Uh, proximity. Um, so they have kind of like their own unique culture there, like Okinawans, um, as opposed to like the Japanese people, you know, part of Japan. Uh, it's kind of like, you know, Taiwan. Well, not, not kind of. It's kind of a different situation, but similar um, Taiwan and, and how China or like Hong Kong and how China different. Still the same. Got it. I mean, even though it wasn't necessarily like fully integrated in a sense uh, to the country of Japan, did you sense, like you said, you know, the U.S. has been in Japan since World War II and obviously the way World War II ended, is there still, did you sense any kind of like tension or animosity from the locals even like 50, 60 years later after, you know, whatever happened with Hiroshima and Nagasaki, that kind of thing towards the military? So there's, I mean, there's some small, um, I would say the general, the general like vibe from the Japanese people and the locals generally positive. There's, there's always your clusters of of people depending on how history has played out. I mean, there, there have been times where some of the U.S. military folks have got trouble. Um, Like, for example, there was a, there was a a horrific event mid nineties where a service member like raped the local Oh, wow. Yeah. So that was a big like, hey, we don't want the military here at all. Right. So it's like, you know, it's definitely warrants. Hey, backlash. Um, but then there's other aspects like uh, like military operations are not the cleanest and most environmentally friendly. So you have a lot of um, kind of, you know, environmental um, advocates that are like, hey, you know, we don't want these planes and these helicopters, you know, drop fuel everywhere. We don't want these explosions going off and the noise complaints. We just generally don't want you here. Um, so there, there's some of that. And, you know, depending on how the service members act over there, whether they're making headlines in the news for good things, you know, generally you receive positive attention. Um, but if you're making the news and in, in the headlines for, for bad things, then generally people aren't going to want you there. Uh, but for the most part, it, it, it tends to be, um, you know, more more positive than it is negative. But you do, um, at least in Japan, run into those things. And I, I think that would be almost anywhere, right? You know, if you, yeah. have, if you have a, you know, if you're foreigner in a different country and you do something mm-hmm. you know outside of the country's norms you know those people are going to be like hey we don't want you here and that you know, i think that's probably warranted mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah but- I, I i definitely and after okinawa like you ended up like also going to east africa i mean you went to Djibouti, right how did that happen yeah so so that's where i, I guess um, you could classify that as a deployment because it was like considered a, a combat zone but it didn't 
like do anything crazy there. Um, but it was, you know, it was really interesting. So that was another one. I was in Japan like six months and uh, they were looking for someone to go out. So, so normally, um, depending on where you're at, where you're at in the military, most people will kind of like deploy or like go overseas with like a large group of people. Mm-hmm. Um, unit is what they would call it or, you know, like their station or whatever. They'll all deploy together. But in my case, um, I actually went from like a permanent unit to East Africa, which is not so permanent. You know, it's like a considered contingency location. Um, the infrastructure is not a, as built up. Uh, there's still ongoing conflict in the region. Complete different mission, right? So mm. worrying about North Korea all the time. You're worrying about, um, you know, terrorist groups in the area. You're, you're focused on doing humanitarian uh, relief work and missions, you know, in the region. Um, you know, building up the local economy. Like there's, there's many, uh, there are many times where we were making like hospitals, or we were doing like creating uh, water wells for the for the locals, uh, you know, just to give them infrastructure to be able to like um, have a better way of life, you know. I mean, did you? I mean, you were in the finance department, so maybe you didn't see a lot of you know active duty stuff. But what did you go through? Any kind of like I don't know, seal six team underground secrecy mission in Djibouti? <laughs> not that I'm not that I'm, I'm sure you can't share any of that on the podcast, but I still have to ask. <laughs> I mean, certainly, you know, the, the finance folks, they, they see kind of everything in terms of what's going on um, from your your public relations stuff all the way to your, your secret missions um, within reason. Um, but, you know, I mean, it's nothing too crazy. And I mean, the military does a variety of things. So, you know, they... And that's what makes the military really unique is because you could, um, like, say, for instance, um, the embassy, uh, the the U.S. embassy in Djibouti was really close to uh, the base that I was at in Djibouti. So we did a lot of work collaborative, um, like, with them. Um, mm. so, but, but things that were, were different is you could take a military member, like a service member, you could help you know get that person to do this diplomacy work where mm-hmm. they're talking to the local government you know helping to either um talking to like defense mi- uh ministers of defense or or whatever um and you could also give them uh, a weapon to go to war um so you know like service members are really versatile and flexible and with respect to what they can do on behalf of the US government as opposed to like some of the other agencies that are out there like say um i don't know like the fbi for example you know they're like a law enforcement agency you have the state department which is solely focused on diplomacy you have um uh, what's another one uh usaid which um does humanitarian and economic development work uh for other countries but the military the u.s military can do all of that all of that um, they they help these other organizations. They work hand in hand with them, um, but they can also do like these other things, like hey, go to war if you need to, or you know, help train this military if you. Need to. So there's always a variety of things that they do, um, you know, on behalf of the U.S. government. Not every time where you see, and this was a big misbelief um, that I had that, and even like my family have. And a lot of people in the U.S. have is if you are in the military, it means like you're going to war. And that's not the case. It's a huge organization mm. and there's a lot of support. that has. Yeah, to- some people might argue going to war or supporting the war in some form or fashion. Yeah, yeah. But I mean like directly, directly. Mm. Yeah, like definitely. If you go to the military, you're going to be shooting at people 
And then, I mean, that it does happen still, but rarely does it happen. I mean, we are not doing ground combat at the level that we were doing sure. in, in World War II. I mean, definitely some people say the future of combat is like cybersecurity or, or even like with the Wuhan conspiracy, uh, uh, you know, uh, bioterrorism and disease and things like that. So not necessarily like arm-to-arm combat. Um, But let me me ask you this, like experiencing, you know, those foreign cultures, being in Okinawa, being in Djibouti, uh, you know, having pockets or or groups of people that didn't necessarily like the military in both places, did that give you a sense, this is you, you know, uh, a white guy growing up in Pennsylvania, you know, going to school in D.C., all this stuff, did that give you some kind of sense of what some immigrants in the U.S. kind of go through? Because you were in a foreign place, and that's probably your, your first time, and there were a lot of things you probably didn't understand, the language, you know, the food, you had to get accustomed to a lot of things. Yes, you had the U.S. military to for support or things like that, but did I also kind of give you a sense or better understand like some of your immigrant friends and things like that of what they yeah. go through here in the U.S.? No, absolutely. And that's, you know, that's a really good point because I, you know, whenever I went over to Japan, that was my first time overseas at all, completely different culture, right? Um, but the longer I, so I spent two and a half years overseas collectively, uh, and I wasn't just in Djibouti and Japan, I I did, uh, I think it was like 13 or 14 countries um, collectively over that entire time. Oh, wow. And um, one thing that I learned was, you know, I did uh, a lot of travel with the military, but I also did a lot of travel individually as well. And one thing I realized is the more you do it and the more cultures you learn about, just get a better sense of the world, the the more like um, open you're going to be about it, the more mm. you'll be willing to, like whenever I went to Djibouti, I'm like, you know, now I could pretty much go anywhere whatsoever and things will be kind of normal. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm willing to go and do those certain things. Um, yeah, I, I, to- I totally, you know, relate with that. You know, the more you travel, the more you, you know, push yourself out there, you know, you build this, this tor- tolerance, this exposure, this uh, patience to kind of like uh, other th- foreign things don't seem as foreign anymore. And that's one thing I have kind of like doing this podcast, talking with people from different countries or well, that have different backgrounds week after week. You know, I get to learn all these things and at the end of the day, eventually it doesn't seem so different. Um, but yeah, you come back to the U.S. eventually. Uh, you, you go back to grad school. Uh, you, you get a job as a I don't know if I can call it general term. You get a job as a, like a contractor uh, working in DC and you get into like finance, business and investment heavy. So let's talk about that aspect of your life. Uh, so I watched a video on YouTube, uh, a CNBC video that was done, I think sometime last year or early. Yeah, talking about, and this is something I didn't know about you when you were in school. I just thought that, oh, okay, maybe you're working in DC, but apparently you're really into like rental property and you do that even besides your business schedule, you have one or two rental properties. How did you decide to get into that? Because when people think about finance guys, the first thing they start with is stocks. That's what I definitely started with because it's easier, it's cheaper to buy as intangible rental properties come with all these things, especially in a place like the US. What made you decide to go into rental properties and take me through your first rent for your first home uh, investment property as against a personal property? I mean, that's a a whole story in in and of itself. (laughs) Uh, but let me just back up real quick. So I, you know, I was in high school when I took a personal finance class whenever I was junior. And that was like when the light bulb like clicked. 
Um, and, and like ever since that class, I have like said, hey, I want to study business. I want to learn everything I can about everything related to business. Uh, I've always kind of gravitated towards the finance aspect, but I, I tried learning marketing. I've tried operations, human resource, anything related to running an enterprise. I've been trying to learn it. And, uh, you know, fast forward to, to me coming back, um, you know, I, I was able to, to save up a lot of money in the military. I mean, you basically live for free and then all you have is discretionary income. So I was able to save up a bunch of money and um, kind of actually whenever I was still overseas at the time, uh, my, my cousin actually lived in a house in Pittsburgh and he moved and uh, he moved into another house and we basically came together and said, hey, we've always wanted to get in the real estate. Let's turn this house that you used to live in into a rental property. Mm. So did was uh, we basically, it took about a year, a little bit more than a year, but um, no, about a year and a half actually. Um, but we completely remodeled the house. Oh, so he owned the house already. Well, it, I mean, it's under mortgage still. I mean, it still has a loan on it, mm. uh, but it, it, uh, it, it basically, it was his primary residence. So he lived there with his family 10 years or seven, you know, I think it was like seven years later. Uh, decided to move to another place, and then basically the house sat vacant uh, while we did these renovations. Okay. And fast forward to essentially. Did, did you guys have to form a corporation to do that, or you kind of like just did that person? No, nope. so it's okay. just a, a personal agreement between uh, you know him and I. So, uh, but you could certainly. I mean, there's a variety of ways to to buy real estate in businesses. Uh, none of my real estate is currently in a business at all. Um, which, you know, we can get to. Um, but, you know, fast forward to pretty much like last year, uh, the property like wasn't rented at all. And we finally finished it like mid-July last year. And ever since a, a, a tenant's been in there, uh, the house on the inside is essentially brand new. Uh, and, and the tenant has been there. Uh, even now with, with, with COVID, uh, we actually just received uh, three months in advance rent. So, you know, no, no issues whatsoever. Um, you know, we, we think we, we rent it out for a fair price, uh, maybe even a little bit less than, than what it's actually worth. And, you know, we have a good tenant in there and uh, we hope that that tenant kind of stays in there and just, you know, take, continues to take care of the property. Um, so, so that was your first property with your cousin. Did you end up acquiring more properties with your cousin or you kind of like went out on your own to like, well, what was your next property then? Yeah, so the next property was actually, I, uh, whenever I moved back from Japan, I, I picked D.C. because I you know, kind of wanted to maintain a touch with the government and then also maintain the international diversity that I had just experienced for the last two and a half years. So I, I chose D.C. and I, I bought a condo right away in Old Town Alexandria. And, you know, fortunate benefit. This was still with your military money saved up? Yeah, but uh, how it, well, here, I'll get into that here shortly. Um, but how it basically works is when you go to the military, you get some really awesome home loan benefits. Mm. Um, essentially, what you could do is you could move into a property uh, and not pay a down payment whatsoever if you don't want to. Um, there's just, you know, some, some things that you have to pay. Uh, the Department of Veterans Affairs is the, uh, are the folks that actually administer the program. 
and they basically um, just want you to pay this thing called a funding fee, which on a, on a mortgage statement, it's classified as private mortgage insurance. So it's similar to that, but you basically pay it all up front. Uh, and it, most of the times it's, it's actually lumped in with the mortgage. Uh, so basically it allows you to move into a place uh, without paying the 20% down payment that, that most people are accustomed to. Um, so I move in there. I, I spend about 15 months in there. And, uh, you know, I, I get a call from one of my dad's friends that one of his friends is moving up to D.C. and he, uh, you know, needs a place to crash. So uh, I, I get in contact with the guy. I, you know, I let him stay at my, my house um, until he gets all settled in. And a few weeks later, um, you know, I was like jokingly, the guy, you know, he's still looking around, couldn't find a place. I was like jokingly said, hey, why don't you just rent this place and I'll move somewhere else? Well, <laughs> oh, to rent the, your condo. Yeah, my condo. Yeah, Got so it. He, it was a one bedroom. Um, so he was sleeping in the living room. I had like a Murphy bed. Um, so he had like an actual bed. And then I was like in the room and I like was jokingly like, hey, you, you know, if you need a place to live and you like this, you can have it. Uh, and then as long as you just give me time to find another place. And, and that's, uh, I mean, essentially what happened. So I, uh, last oh, that's, that's business savvy, man. Yeah, so, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, uh, he was looking around and was fine in places, um, you know, kind of a little bit more expensive, a few hundred dollars more. And, you know, I was like, look, you just pay me kind of like at cost and, uh, you know, it's yours. Take care of it. You know, him and I are friends. We actually, uh, last year we started a coffee company together. So, yeah. You know, and you're, si you're single, right? And you're in your 20s. So it's easy to like just get up and go. Like you don't have like a family and other things to consider when making this business decisions. And it's kind of admirable that, hey, you know, being in your 20s and even now, you're like, you're not waiting. You're doing those little steps, like gather up all this inventory. But what, what do you see yourself doing in the future as far as real estate is concerned? Do you like want to do like uh, multi-units, apartment bu buildings? You want to do like hotels? Well, what, do you, what do you see yourself doing? Yeah, so absolutely. So I've, all, I've always considered real estate as like a passive uh, investment for me. Uh, so just as I continue my life, I, I want to keep uh, accumulating more and more real estate, whether it's uh, a condo somewhere or an apartment complex somewhere. I'd love to, you know, do bigger deals and, you know, hope to do that in the future. Uh, I'm actually going through right now, um, I'm, I'm under contract for another property. It'll be my fourth one uh, up in Pittsburgh. So um, nice. Working on getting that. Uh, COVID's kind of throwing. Well, what type of what type of property is it? Uh, so it's a single. It's a single family home. Okay. Uh, it's kind of in the 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 country area of well, like suburbs, I guess you could say of Pittsburgh. Um, and you know how it kind of sprung about is my dad actually just moved back up to Pittsburgh, and you know I'm like instead of you renting somewhere, I'm like let me just buy something kind of cheap for you, and then you <laughs> I like the way you always come into this show. You know, instead of doing this, let me just. Dude, <laughs> it comes around. It comes so easy, right? <laughs> well, I mean, when you're when you're solving someone's problem, it makes it really easy. Like, like for example, with uh, with the guy over in Alexandria, it's like, hey, you're already here. You want to pay two hundred dollars less than what you're gonna pay elsewhere? Then yeah. it makes it a no brainer. Or 
Like, like I, I mean, I, I guess you can say that, but you know, not everyone has the means to kind of like make those decisions, right? I would have loved to do that, but I, d- I didn't have the uh, privilege to kind of like have like two years of savings from the military. So I just got out of grad school, obviously paid a bunch of money in grad school, even though I got, uh, you know, about like a 60% scholarship or whatever, but still paid a lot of money. I'm, and I'm just not getting a job and thinking of those decisions. That's why I'm like starting small with stocks, right? Just, okay, at least you can get a stock for a thousand dollars or whatever, instead of going to or going to a program. But I'm sure, you know, real estate, I, I kind of agree. It's, it's a very good way to have like passive wealth. And that's also something I'm looking at getting into next, you know, hopefully. So maybe we can do some business in the future. Who knows? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And one thing I'd always, well, I always tell this to everyone is, um, you know, real estate's a little bit confusing, right? You know, there's a lot of moving parts. So some people shy away from it because it's, it's much easier to analyze something on paper, like a stock, and have no emotional connection, no uh, material connection to it whatsoever. You just, it, what you're trying to do is figure out the value. And it can mm. boil down to just a bunch of numbers, and then that's it. You're not looking at you're not looking at people behind it. You're not looking at your expertise to get something done. You're not looking at the um, you know taking a look at the asset and finding out uh, what condition it's in. So real estate is kind of a different breed, and that's why it kind of gets this wrap as like an alternative asset. Um, but it's you know it's really similar to at least with rental property is um, really similar to like a bond. Get like interest coupons, but in the form of rents. Um, so it's it's really at the end of the day, it's an asset, just like a stock is. And as an investor, you're foregoing receiving a payment of money in mm. hope of receiving a bigger payment of money in the future. In the and future. That's the whole premise with real estate, whole premise with stocks, bonds, any investment out there, you're foregoing something. Uh, in hopes of it being more in the future. Well, that makes a lot of sense. But like you said, it can get a little complicated because a state like the U.S. is so fragmented. Like I came here to Denver and the housing regulation is totally different than how it was when I was living here. So I'm just getting to see a whole different market. This is me as a tenant. How much more if I was like an investor or a contractor or you know, something like that. But um, you, 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 know, you acquired some of these properties and eventually like went into business with the guy who you rented out the condo to and a couple of other friends. You, you guys opened something called Common Sense Coffee, I guess, yeah. in DC, which is kind of, is it like a coffee store or it's like a brand of coffee that you sell retail? Yeah, so that's, it's really interesting. So we, we, we started it late last year and um, I, I guess you call it a brand right now. So, it, I mean, we do all e-commerce. So everything we do is online sales. Mm. Uh, we, we roast our own coffee here in Alexandria. Uh, you roast coffee in the U.S. That's interesting because Starbucks and all these guys get roasted coffee from like East Africa and South America and all places. Yeah. yeah. So, so what they do, um, what they'll do most of the time is they'll order the bean. Because um, oh. There's what's called the coffee belt. And basically, coffee doesn't grow in the United States, except for in Hawaii and some parts of California. Um, so you can't like start growing coffee in like Pennsylvania or DC, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of places near the equator. So uh, Latin and South America, you have Africa, you have uh, the you know, Indochina region, you know, uh, Indonesia, uh, India, all those areas where coffee can be grown and basically what they do is you'll import it into the united states most of the time and you'll put it into like an industrial um coffee 
reactor and it's basically it looks like a looks like a big dryer like think of like a clothes dryer where you pour beans inside and it turns around and then like 15 minutes later you have roasted coffee that uh you could serve uh kind of you know to your friends and family and 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 that was one thing that we thought was really interesting um but we you know what we're trying to do is we want to apply technology to the coffee industry because right now um, i mean there is technology in in the coffee industry but not a lot a lot of them are small businesses and what we want to do is really leverage um, technology to make a competitive advantage and focus on a lot of analytic um, from customers so that's why we decided to launch online so that's so kind of like amazon for coffee kind of thing um Florida, you Are you going to make a subscription where you deliver? I know some people do it in the tea industry where you deliver different flavors of tea. Like I think my office has a subscription like they bring in tea, different flavors every month and they kind of like use analytics to, to see, to determine yeah. our taste patterns and things like that. Is that, is it something like that you're thinking about? Yeah. So, so even right now, I mean, we, we offer um, like fixed subscription time. So like say you wanted coffee every 14 days, we could do that. Uh, okay. We, you know, to do that um, we, we want to refine it a little bit more and get better so we could give you coffee exactly when you need it not at a fixed interval uh, and that's where kind of the technology piece comes you know we we have ambition uh, in the future to open up um, a, a series of cafes so kind of like a network of, pa- of cafes where we we bring the roasting process which has traditionally been in like a manufacturing setting in, mm-hmm. in our house and we want to bring it into the cafe. Oh, kind of like breweries here in Denver. Exactly like a craft brewery. Exactly like a distillery where you could, um, you know, enjoy uh, a whiskey, you know, while you're having a meal that was distilled right on mm. site. Same exact thing. That makes sense. So, so I guess the product is not going to be like, it's going to be almost like specialty coffee, right? It's not going to be a coffee where I'm running to the office and I just need five minutes at Starbucks to grab and go. This is like a weekend thing. Like I'm going on a date. Let's go get coffee. We go through the process together, get educated about it, kind of like have coffee. Not necessarily. So, so you know, a lot of the aspect, I mean, you know, we're definitely focused on creating a specialty coffee, um, but it, we don't want to do it in a way that it's going to, require people to just show up on the weekends right you know so we want to we want to kind of educate them on how the roasting process occurs so that's why we want to bring the roasting process into the cafe you know we think consumers would be really interested in that being the technology behind it uh we we think that we could potentially do it completely off of solar energy in the yeah. future you know we're getting we're at this weird phase now where solar energy is actually almost cheaper than uh, some of the the natural gas kind of uh, technologies out there uh, and it's probably going to continue getting better and we're, we're going to bet on it getting better. Uh, and, you know, if we could do that, the coffee industry is a huge, large industry. You know, yeah, tell me about it in the U S it is like, I didn't understand. Like I've had, I think I had like uh, some tea in my house for like a year, like where I come from, like no one drinks coffee. Uh, the Northern Nigeria drinks tea, but not as frequent as like the average U S person. Everyone wakes up and, Everyone has to have like a coffee fix kind of or some kind of beverage. You know, it can be coffee or tea or something. But yeah, that's pretty interesting. Is the solar play kind of like just cut cost cutting techniques? Like you guys are saying that this is where the industry is going or you're, you're kind of using that as kind of like branding that, hey, this is how coffee is produced, where bean come from, yeah, we use solar energy kind of thing. It's a mix, you know. So I think that's where the industry is going, right? So the technology to actually be able to roast 
on a commercial scale using electricity is just now reaching the market. Mm. Um, we think with solar being a way to generate that electricity that is going to be possible in the future, provide coffee that has been roasted electronically mm. uh, on a commercial basis. Uh, and, you know, I, I think that would be a huge win. So, so part of it's branding, uh, a part of it is, uh, you know, if, if I have a firm belief that like, if you could do, if, if you have two options of being kind of like carbon neutral and using like, um, you know, carbon in, in your activities and yeah. both cost the same, then, you know, you might as well go carbon free. And, you know, if this, if this really does work and it's sustainable to offer coffee that has been roasted using an electric roaster, carbon free, um, well, or at least carbon reduced, then you know the coffee industry as a whole is looking at a huge disruption because right now two thirds of Americans, and that's just Americans, drink coffee every single day. Mm. So there's a lot of coffee roasted every single year, and a lot of that. Um, it is roasted with natural gas, which is cleaner than, than say, coal, but it still has a negative impact on the environment, and especially at the, at the scale that um, the coffee is, is, is roasted today. And that's, you know, that's another aspect of the company that we want to focus on is we, you know, like the whole branding behind the company is, um, you know, we want to give coffee, we want to provide coffee to people who change the world. So like our, mm. our mission is to provide is to provide top tier coffee to the visionaries of the world and then sharing their accomplishments so we oh, i might have to order a few bags then because yeah. <laughs> I, I have i have plans you know i mean that's exactly what we want to do we want to um you know we think it's socially acceptable to have a, a coffee in an interview it's socially acceptable to have a coffee in a meeting where you're talking about releasing a new product it's socially acceptable to buy real estate and have coffee with and we want to provide those people that are building the future with the coffee and talk about it we want to hear about what they're doing whether starting companies or being an advocate for um, you know environmental rights or um, you know, starting an education company to revolutionize the way education in in the world. Oh, but yeah, starting with e-commerce is kind of almost like the Howard Schultz model in the seventies. You know, turning Starbucks from just a utility or whatever product to somewhere to like an ethos, somewhere people can actually come to like you know sit down, talk about things, whatever. You know, so they can build ideas, build things. But you guys, instead of making a physical place, you're using online that you want to participate in those things. But you're just doing it through the products, not through base. Yep. Oh, okay, that that's uh, pretty interesting. Let me ask you this though: like you have this you know amazing background. You know, you went to the military. You you've lived abroad. You you've worked in government contracting. You're in real estate. You understand finance. You've started your own business. When are you running for office, dude? <laughs> Let's know. <laughs> Let's know, because uh, all these things, your, your life seems so thought out, right, and planned. Like, there has to be an end goal somewhere. Like, what is it? Is it the governor of Pennsylvania? Are you going to start with Senate? I mean, you live in D.C. right now, so that might be easier. Yeah, so, so that's a, I, I get that question from time to time. You know, I, I've, I've thought about my life a lot, and, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not so much, a, um, I guess you would say, traditional, like, hey, you know, uh, go to college and go start a family, have kids, go and live your life until retirement, right? So I, I mean, my, my goal is 
I mean, generally planned out. Like I, I want to, um, you know, I found something that I like, right? And I want to uh, really expend all my energy on it. Um, in my early years, I want to amass a bunch of resources. So like get fairly wealthy. And, you know, I'm a firm believer, uh, if you ever heard of Andrew Carnegie, he has this um, uh, piece of literature, it's called The Gospel of Wealth. And, you know, I've read it multiple times, it's my absolute favorite piece of literature out there. And basically, he says that, um, you know, the rich and the wealthy have like a moral obligation to kind of give back to society before they um, before they kind of uh, leave the world. Which is what Carnegie did in the later part of life, right? Donating dinosaurs and all these things to museums and building New York City and all these things. Yeah, so absolutely. So, I, you know, I hope that I can make tons and tons of money um, just so I could go out and, you know, I, I'd love to have a university. I'd love to... to what, what would you call it? Ramela U? Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. May, you know. Maybe a school within a school. Um, just naming rights. Um, but, you know, I've always... I, I'm so big on education. I love I love universities. I, I really believe what they do for society and think they're beneficial for society. Um, so that's like one of the most passionate things that I uh, like about me. Um, but, you know, on top of that, like just doing anything I can from like a, um, from a philanthropic sense, you know, I, I would like to run for office eventually, um, uh, probably like in, in a Congress type thing, whether it's a representative or, um, you know, Senate, if I'm fortunate enough. Um, but that won't be until, you know, later down the road, like, you know, really build the wealth, build the influence, do my part for society and come back in the public service. Got it. Got it, man. I really, you know, wish you the best in all your endeavors. Obviously, uh, we're going to be here, you know, every step of the way. I have, you know, plans of my own and I I obviously see our path like, uh, you know, intersecting sometime in the future. So I'll I'll definitely keep in touch. Uh, At the end of the episode, I like to give my guests opportunities to just talk about whatever they want to. I mean, you can plug any of your businesses you want to. You can, you know, talk to your future self. You can drop your social media handles. uh, If you want to reach out to you, you can ask me a couple of questions if you want to, uh, whatever it is you want to. Yeah. So so I guess, uh, first of all, I mean, I'd encourage anyone that, you know, has questions about anything. um, I'm always willing to to have a chat. you, know, you could just um, look me up on Google and social media. Um, it, you know, I'm always happy to talk about, especially like real estate, finance, anything business, I'm available. Um, you know, I'll get my coffee plug too. check out <laughs> Common Sense Coffee. Uh, and, you know, I guess the, the biggest thing is, you know, kind of what's next for you? Who, me? Uh, I mean, I, I want to, so I, I keep, I've been asking myself a question for like two years now. So I, I was in commercial banking back home, so I decided to come here to AU. So I obviously saw how the fintech companies were disrupting banks. So I want to, ultimately, I want to get into VC, like yeah. ultimately down the road and, you know, VC uh, investing in, you know, tar- uh, companies in emerging markets, so whether that's Africa, Asia, you know, things like that. Things outside Silicon Valley, that's what I want to do eventually. But to get there, I really want to play in fintech. So I've been asking myself, what is the perfect intersection between finance, technology, and media? Because I've been working on some things behind the scenes. How do we provide a financial service, leveraging technology to get that service to places where it might not necessarily be to in the hands of people that might not necessarily use that service? So the financial inclusion piece, but also incorporating media in a sense that that service becomes part of everyday life, whether that's 
you know, through content or having a platform of some sort. So people are interacting, kind of like how Venmo does, right? Oh, you go for a burger with a friend, you pay him and you put that burger emoji. Just that, you know, Venmo is not as fleshed out to that you're going there every time to see feeds and things. But, uh, you know, I see myself playing in fintech, ultimately going into VC to invest in countries in, you know, Nigeria, West Africa, you know, Southeast Asia and other emerging markets. Uh, but along the way, you know, like you making those investments in stocks and real estate uh, and, and building, you know, those relationships with uh, those individuals, I think, can help get there 10, 15 years or so. Yeah, you, you know, I think if you, if you know, I, I have a, a few um, kind of like philosophies um, that I kind of live by. And, and the first one is, is to, to understand the world like as much as I can. Uh, the, the the second is to leave society better off when I'm gone than, than when I started. Uh, and then up until recently, uh, you know, I added a third one. It's to, you know, really kind of be an advocate for like the underrepresented, um, you know, people that either don't think they can do something or someone that can't do something because of some restriction or whatever. Um, but just giving them the encouragement. And, you know, that I, I think that's, you know, a good set of principles to live by. And even like just people live in their life, right? So you you find a problem and you just look for a solution and, and passively. And if you do that over the course of your lifetime, I, I think, you know, things will be okay for, you. you know, whether it's, you know, you're trying to succeed in business or trying to be a good community leader or work at a nonprofit or a- anything that you want to do, you could do, um, it, you know, as long as you uh, kind of have passion and kind of really want to put in the effort to do it. Yeah, so start with why. Why do you, why are you doing what you want yeah, to do, right? <laughs> yeah, definitely. We really appreciate you being on the podcast, man. It's been a very interesting conversation. You know, hopefully uh we can get you when you eventually announce your bid to run and say, Hey, you know, we said it eight, nine years ago. <laughs> we might as well do another interview or whatever. Uh, but that's besides uh the point. Uh thank you so much, Garrett. Uh you guys can follow Culture Class Podcast everywhere. It's Culture Class Podcast on Instagram, Facebook, uh, Culture Class Pod on Twitter. Send us an email, cultureclasspodcast at gmail.com. If, if you want us to put you in touch with Garrett Ramella, uh, if you have questions about the military, about finance, about real estate, let us know and we'll forward it to him. And till next episode, be safe. Wash your hands and stay indoors. <laughs> <laughs>